Hey, you guys, tickets have officially gone on sale for my next virtual conference. In May, we did Rise Live Courage, and now we're doing Rise Live Healthy and Happy. We're spending an entire day, nine plus hours of programming with some of the greatest speakers in the world, all talking about how to live your life in such a way that you have the energy to have the life of your dreams. What does it look like to learn to eat intuitively? What does it look like to move your body in celebration? What does it look like to approach health from a place of love and celebration instead of shame? We believe that healthy and happy is about how you feel, not about how you look. So I am joined by incredible people like Jay Shetty and Stacy Flowers, Kelly Levesque, Dave Hollis, Trent Shelton, motivating the crap out of you. Me, talking about inspiration. And if you've ever been to a Rise conference before, you better believe you're also going to hear from Beans and Chris. It's going to be a day of fun and energy and so empowering. If you feel like you have fallen off your plan inside of quarantine, if you feel like you need a kick in the pants to get you motivated again, this is the day for you, and tickets start at $40. You can go to thehollisco.com right there at the top of the page. You'll see a big banner. Click on it. Let's hang out. Let's get fired up together. Yeah, this is my first time ever having a microphone, so thank you for your help. Uh, This is Scott Miller. Guys, can we give it up? A little welcome. Um, So I listened to you on a podcast and then chose uh, Management Mess as the book for our leadership team. As per usual, I can always tell if a nonfiction book is good if I've taken sort of serial killer notes in the margins, which I did on this one. And uh, he so graciously agreed to come in and do Rise podcast today. And since we had him in real life, I just... I was like pretty pleased when you talked to the staff. So um, we're just going to chat about all sorts of things, and I would love it. Are you down to do a little bit of a Q&A? At the I'm, end? I'm down okay. for everything. Perfect. Yeah. Great. So, I want to uh, work here. Great, there, are there any job openings? There are many job openings. The, cul- the culture is palpable in yeah, here. Yeah, good. Um, so please save up some questions for the end and, and ask all the wise things, and we'll just uh, we'll kick it off. Yeah? I'm Rachel Hollis. And I've built a multi-million dollar media company with a high school diploma and the free information I found on the internet. In the 15 years that I've been building and scaling my company, I have become deeply passionate about helping other entrepreneurs to do the same. So each week, I'll be sharing tangible and tactical advice and inspiring interviews with the same intention. These are the tools to change your life and your business. This is the Rise Podcast. Will you talk to them about your career and what you all do? Uh, because they yeah. might not be super sure. familiar with yeah. Stephen Covey. So welcome, everybody. Honored to be here. Uh, my wife is enormously jealous that I'm down here with you today. So I'm from uh, Orlando, Florida, born and raised there in Central Florida. Worked for the Disney Company for four years. And then they invited me to leave, (laughs) which is how Disney says it when you're not right for the culture. So uh, I left at their invitation that day back in 1996. And believe it or not, the uh, uh, Franklin Covey Company recruited me. That's the Covey that Stephen Covey founded of the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People fame, which you're an influence, which you all are well on your way to becoming. 
I see a lot of similarities with this organization where we were you know, 25 years ago. Mm -hmm. Don't go public, but beyond that, I can I give you some never. great insight on that. <laughs> uh, that book has sold 30 million copies. It's the number one most influential business book in history. So I've been in that firm for 23 years. I started as a frontline salesperson back in 1996, which was a cultural shock for a single Catholic boy from Orlando moving to Provo, Utah. If you've been to Provo, Utah, it's sort of like a Jew going to the Vatican. It's a very different place in terms of the Latter-day Saints and the Catholics. Right? Yeah. It was a big cultural change for me. I had a lot of days where I was crying in the VP's office. Like, how do you survive in this city? Because it's, you know, 99% Latter-day Saint, of which they're my best friends now. Yeah. I joke that I had the largest ever Mormon wedding in a Catholic church <laughs> because all my friends are Latter-day Saints out there. So I had a great run, started as a salesperson, became a general manager, spent a year in the UK, spent six years in Chicago, kept moving back to Utah because it was the opposite of Orlando. No humidity, no neon, no billboards, little crime. Kept being called back to Park City, Utah. You been there at all? It's a paradise. Yep. Love the no humidity, no tarantulas. And, no, yeah, yeah, right. yeah, no scorpions. So I uh, moved my way up the organization, eventually became the chief marketing officer for the last eight years, owning the brand globally. Uh, learned what it's like to be a named executive officer in a public company, just the fiduciary responsibility, what you say, what you do, what you sign off on. You know, when you check boxes on a form, you have to be really cautious around, I've ever read this, right? Because yeah. you can be responsible for the company worldwide. And then about a year and a half ago, I was listening to um, Whitney Johnson. She was one of the um, guests on one of my podcasts. She wrote a book called Disrupt Yourself. And she talked about how most people have about a three-year attention span for any job. After three years, you kind of get emotionally um, unsettled, and a great organization tries to help build a career for you in their company, not always. And I thought, yeah, I've been in every job I've had here for about six or seven years. It's time for me to move on. So I kicked myself out of the chief marketing officer role, became the executive vice president of thought leadership, kind of made up a new job. You can do that when you're on the executive team. <laughs> and uh, hosted the podcast, and I've been, always been in the book publishing business. I've launched a lot of amazing authors and speakers, done a fair amount of speaking, and decided to do something different for the firm and write this book, mm -hmm. which was a bit of a, a heresy, because in our company, Franklin Covey, we're sort of the, it all works out nice, fine leadership company. And I mean that not as the, the diss them, but it doesn't always work out fine and nice. Leadership is tough. Mm -hmm. It is unrelenting. It's sometimes very unrewarding. It's not for everyone. I think not everybody should be a leader of people. I think our industry has foisted on the, the world that everybody should be a leader. And I think that is actually quite hazardous. Mm. And we shame people when they don't want to become a leader. I think people have leadership capabilities. Lead a project, lead an initiative, lead your family. That doesn't mean you should be leading people on a team. Mm. It's just fine to be an individual producer. And I think too many organizations make their career tracks, you can't get promoted if you don't become a leader of people. And I think that's a horrible thing. I think too often people are lured into leadership and they're not led. Because what happens is you promote the wrong people. You promote the best digital designer, the best dental hygienist, the best salesperson. And the competencies that those people have that make them the best digital designer rarely make them a great leader of people. Mm -hmm. Or do they want to be a leader of people? And they, they have to have high courage conversations and move outside their comfort zone. And then they hate that leadership job and they quit. Yeah. And now the company's lost the best digital designer and their leadership pipeline and no one knows why. Yeah. Because too often you lure people in. So I wrote this book to talk about how tough leadership is. Sold 25,000 copies in 90 days. Not too shabby. Yeah, it's awesome. And one night about a month ago, I get this, um, this email 
from Rachel. I get a lot of emails from celebrities, but they always come through like the agent. Well, you put your publicist. email in your uh, book. But once, like midway through, <laughs> thinking no one would make it there. I put my email in and basically said something like, hey, if you ever launched into the C-suite, yeah, let like, me know, email me to that one, thinking no one would ever even get there. <laughs> so I get emails every day from, from doing this kind of thing, but it's yeah. always from a publicist. Yeah. Rachel just emails me. I'm like, ah, I put the phone down. And then like a minute later, she connects to me on LinkedIn. I'm did. like, it's a ghost. I was stalking There's no in way. every And I'm way. like running to my house, Stephanie. <laughs> Guess what, Rachel Hollis? I'm sure it's a scam. <laughs> I'm sure it's like somebody I fired five years ago just sort of ghosting me, trolling me. And so I wrote back and she says something like, hey, would you be on my podcast? Yeah. I said, yeah, let me think about yeah. it. I'll see if I can work on it. She said, no, I'm serious. Here I am. Yeah. Thank you. That's so rad. Thanks. Well, I, I think for us, you know, whenever you're scaling a company, just to give you some perspective, we've gone from four employees about 18 months ago to almost, we might be at 60. Wow. Yeah, so it's a lot. And trying to navigate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, it's um, trying to navigate that and make sure that we do it well and make sure that we're leading out intentionally and all of those things. This was such a... Like, it felt like an answer to prayer, truly, because I was just like, man, we, leadership is so important. And I loved and would love if you could talk to this idea. You started to touch on it a bit of when you're leading a company, you tend to promote the people who are the highest performers. Right. But being a high performer doesn't necessarily mean that you can lead people. They are really two different skill sets. Right. So can you talk a bit about that? And is it possible, and I know the answer, but let's pretend I don't, uh, is it possible to not have great leadership skills and learn them over time? Yeah, the, so I give four or five keynotes a week. I'm on probably 10 podcasts a week. I've always asked the same question, which is kind of odd, which is, uh, are leaders made or are they born? I don't believe leaders are born. I think people are born, and maybe artists are born. I don't know, I'm not an artist, in terms of classic art. I, I think leadership is a developed skill. Mm -hmm. I do think that, that Anybody could become a great leader if they're willing to move outside their natural comfort zone enough. Let me rewind a little bit. I think that culture is every organization's most valuable asset. That will be yours. It won't be her. It won't be your husband. It won't be your books or your website. It'll be your culture inside this company. And that's a bit of a buzzword right now, but it is absolutely true. 30 years in this organization, if I have any expertise, it's around how do you build a great culture. This adage that people are an organization's most valuable asset, you've heard that? Totally not true. It's bunk. You are not this company's most valuable asset. How you and you get along together, that is what makes this company rock. If you two can forgive each other, because she talks too much, and you come to work too late, you get the point, right? If you can forgive each other, if you can pre-forgive each other, if you can trust each other, if you can understand what are her strengths and what are her weaknesses, and you can build complement, that is this organization's most valuable asset. That is your killer app. How the people work at this company, that's what will make you scale. So, so what is the role of leadership? Leaders create culture. Leaders are the linchpin in any organization with culture because you create culture in every interaction, every email, every text, every time you put somebody in BCC, don't use BCC. There's no reason for that. Because then you create a suspicious culture. But leaders create culture in every interaction. Every time you walk from one building to the next or one cubicle and you're on your phone versus saying hi to someone, how's it going, you're creating or destroying culture. So 
you have to be very deliberate around the kind of culture you want. All your actions, behaviors, everything you say, every interaction, you're building culture. People don't quit their jobs. They quit their boss. That's so good. That's in the book. It's not, it's not original so to me. Good. But more importantly, they also quit their culture. Because you can change bosses out, right? You can move someone around, but if your culture is one where everybody's gossiping and backbiting, you don't trust each other, that's your culture. Mm -hmm. If your culture is you pre-forgive, you don't confess other sins, you sit in the cubicle and say, can I tell you, I'm feeling there's some awkwardness between us, something's going on, perhaps something I said, I'm totally willing to, to cop to it, but I'm not quite sure what's going on, it's kind of thick in here, can we just have, that? that's culture. Mm. You gotta work on it, because your culture can devolve to the lowest level or you can go to the highest level. So to your point, leadership can be learned. But I don't, again, think everybody should be a leader of people. Here's what being a leader of people is like. Let's say you report to me. Yeah. Like that's gonna happen. <laughs> I'm gonna say, Rachel, I called you into my office today because I wanna have a high courage conversation with you. What said in here stays in here. And I want you to know my intent is to help you fulfill a great career here at the Hollis Company. And there are some behaviors that I'm seeing you exist with the team members that are really causing you some problems. And if they don't correct, it's going to end up in you leaving the organization. I find that when we're, you get the point, right? Like four times a day. It might even be so far as, John, I've called you in my office today because like me, I've noticed that you might be breaking through your deodorant. It's hot in Texas in the summertime, our body, I know, you're mortified. You get the point, right? And like me, sometimes I gotta switch up my deodorant because I break through it. I've noticed it a bit about you before anybody else does. I really have your best interest in mind. That's leadership. And any other conversation about your productivity, your abundance, your tardiness, your ability to collaborate, your ability to take credit, your ability to walk in and not say my bad. Do not say that in front of me. Don't let it come out of your mouth. Walk in and say, we went to the concert last night. I had four beers. Okay, I had six beers. I took an Uber home. I overslept and I was late on my report and I own it and I am sorry and it will never happen again. 100% my responsibility. Can I have a second chance? That's the kind of conversations that leaders are having. So all those can be learned. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day though, that's easy for perhaps someone like me who's been doing it for 25 years. I do that all day long. It doesn't even phase me. But for some people, that's like a horrifying conversation to have any of those. And it might keep you up at night for four or five hours while your stomach is churning. If that's the case, leadership may not be the right role for you because the biggest gift you can give someone on your team is to help them see their blind spots. We all have them. If I'm going too long, stop me. No, this is we, like my dream. We aren't as punctual. We're not as smart. We're not as creative. We're not as self-aware. Our breath doesn't smell as good. My wife says I'm not as funny as I think I am. But everybody's got blind spots. And the biggest gift you can give someone as a leader is to have the courage to sit them down and talk about them in private, not discuss them, perhaps role play them with Rachel or her husband. You get the point, right? That's the biggest gift you can give someone. Mm -hmm. Because what happens is most people have pansy leaders. Well intended, but don't summon the courage to sit down and say, we need to have a conversation. I've seen this behavior four or five times in meetings. I don't know why, but you're really struggling with ever letting somebody else take the credit. Mm. Or you're just, everything's on your own hard drive. You've got to put the files in the server so everybody can access them because you're not the only talented person in this organization. You've got to trust other people. It's those kind of conversations that you gotta have. The problem is most leaders don't do that. Yeah. They sit down and they say, how am I doing? Oh, everything is great, I'm loving it, it's great, it's great. <laughs> and then it's time for Rachel to call you in and say, I've got a problem with Tim, what's going on over there? And then you wait three or four more months, it builds up, and then you do one of two things. You either lower the boom on Tim, and he never knew, and you devastate him, or you 
beat around the bush, and you obfuscate, and, and then Tim walks out thinking everything's okay. So great leaders have a balance of high courage, but also high consideration, right? They have this diplomacy. I don't have that. I'll talk about anything with anybody. The biggest gift you can give your people is to sit down in a respectful way, have a straightforward conversation, and then lockbox. Don't talk about it. Don't talk about it at lunch with the other managers. Respect that person's, yeah. you know, uh, brand. Hey y'all, if you are looking for something to compliment the foods that you are already eating to bless your body, I wanna make sure you know about Sakara's Clean Boutique. It's the perfect complement for your eating journey with organic, whole food-based healthy snacks, supplements, and heartwarming teas that round out your rituals beautifully. Complete your Saqqara life and ensure you're getting all the essential plant nutrition you need every day with The Foundation, the brand's curated vitamin packs. And if you want to check it out, right now Saqqara is offering our listeners 20% off their first order when they go to saqqara.com slash rise or enter code rise at checkout. That's Saqqara, S-A-K-A-R-A, dot com slash rise to get 20% off your first order. Sakara.com slash rise. One of the things that you guys have, which I love, is this idea of, and, and correct me if I'm saying it wrong, but is it loyalty to the absolute? Yeah, can I share that? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Dr. Covey popularized a lot of amazing thoughts and phrases. If you haven't read the Seven Habits book, there's a reason why it sold 30 million copies. And I'd love to talk about why it's called the seven habits of highly effective people and not seven habits of highly efficient people. Huge difference in being efficient and being effective. Let's make sure we get there. Mm. He has one of his concepts, it's called being loyal to the absent. And I will tell you, the biggest cancer in every organization, and I speak four or five times around the world every week, is gossip. It is the biggest cancer in every Say organization. Say it again for the people in the back. Yeah. Are they the big gossipers in the back? No, no, no. no. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Kevin is terrible. Always talking trash. Uh, but this, this is profound, not because I'm saying it, because it is true. Being loyal to the absent, the biggest cultural cancer is gossip. And it kind of always feels well-intended, but it's not. It's just you being petty. You talk a bit about it in your book, right? Mm-hmm. And... Dr. Covey calls it being loyal to the absent. And the standard is that you will never say something about someone when they are in your absence differently than if they were present. Meaning, from this point forward, make your culture here be when someone is not at lunch or not in the meeting or not at the coffee bar or across the street, you don't speak about them any differently than if they were sitting right in front of you. It will change your standard at 11 o'clock today. It's called being loyal to the absent. Because if you want to build trust with those who are present, you are loyal to those who are absent. So my, my best leadership advice to you is if you want to build trustworthy relationships. In fact, raise your hand if you're trustworthy. No, put them down. <laughs> who decides if you're trustworthy? Other people. The other person. Yeah, right. that's good. You, you build trust with others through your behavior. You earn the right to be called trustworthy because other people trust you based on your encounters. And if you want to build trust with someone and you're in a conversation and it's getting catty or gossipy and someone tries to draw you in, 
You say, you know, I'm sure it isn't your intention, but I'll bet you that would hurt Rachel's feelings if she heard that. So my advice to you is go tell Rachel that directly. And if I had that same experience, I'll do the same. Because you can raise the bar without shaming somebody or, or rushing to the first row in church. Are any of you those people? Right? You kind of claim the first row, so you're the holier person than that. Yeah, a little bit me. There's a lot of first row ch church rushers, are there yeah. not? Yeah. And culturally as well, too. Don't do that. Can we dig into this idea of, uh, I don't know who originally said this quote, but a business grows at the speed of trust. Yeah, right. And what, what it truly means, yeah. like we become a faster and more efficient company if you all trust each other. And not just trust within your own organizations, but trust people in other departments. Will you, yeah. will you talk on yeah, that? Yeah, so doc, Dr. Covey's oldest son, Stephen M. R. Covey, wrote a book called The Speed of Trust. Oh, that is That's that it. is y'all's. That's okay, it. Okay. That's right. I Look at that. Look at the genius that's coming that up. I mean, this okay, is okay. humility right here, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> he wrote this book called The Speed of Trust. It sold two million copies. It's phenomenal. I highly recommend it. I'd even be happy to come back sometime and teach you the content. He identifies 13 behaviors that are common to all high trust leaders. And in fact, of these 30 management practices, half of them come from his book with mm. his permission. And he talks about how in every organization there is either a trust tax or a trust dividend. And trust is your currency. And you can literally have business at the speed of trust. And you can tell that when some of you here can kind of have telepathic business conversations with colleagues. You kind of like, you know their position, you know how they're going to feel, positive or negative. Who here has any kind of telepathic relationships here? You know, you can kind of just like feel. It feels great, doesn't it? And you can do it through email, you can do it through text, but you usually don't because you're willing to walk over to their, their office or their cube and have a conversation. And there's some people who you've either broken trust with, they violated your trust, you don't trust them because of some interaction, so you tend to email them. Or you have their assistant call your assistant, you're not big enough for that yet, or you have some other mode of transportation, you kind of avoid it. Some of you have those here as well. Welcome to being human. But your culture here can be one of extraordinary high trust because you don't gossip, you don't backbite, you use straight talk, you have high courage conversations, you listen well. I'd love to talk about how important listening is to understand that you pre-forgive people. I love that concept, that it's beyond just forgiveness, that you pre-forgive people. People are gonna say things that are rude. People are gonna say things that may have one meeting or they're rooted in a paradigm they have from some other job they have. Not everybody is a sociopath. Not everybody is a narcissist. No one wakes up out of bed thinking they're going to ruin your day. People say things that are sometimes accidental. Pre-forgive people. Doesn't mean you license bad behavior. But it means you give people kind of the benefit of the doubt. You assume good intent. So um, you said that, and I am flipping to the very first thing that I underlined in this book uh, and dog-eared the page because I loved it so much and it punched me in the face, which all good non By the way, I think her opening do. quote was, this book was a blessing from God. Can you make sure we get that on my blog? Do you yes, know what yes, I mean? Yes. I think it was, uh, yeah. this book was a I blessing was from God. The Lord answer came. to prayer, yeah. Answer to prayer, um, thank you. The question was, and just so you all know, this book is broken up into, it's, it's essentially a challenge. So it's a 30-day challenge. Each day is a different thing that you're working on in terms of management. But uh, challenge three, when was the last time you listened to understand rather than to reply? Yeah. And I was like, oh, 
crap. Um, not just as a leader, but also in marriage or even with our, as, as a parent. When was the last time you listened to understand rather than reply? Will you mm. speak on that? Can I riff on that? I need five minutes. Yeah, you don't have to ask permission. Okay. Well, I'm worried that the clock is ticking. Uh, but this meeting was organized by prayer, so we can take a yes, long yes, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, exactly. It's ordained. Ordained. So Dr. Covey's book, The Seven Habits, Habit 5 is seek first to understand, then to be understood. Says easy, does hard, right? I think as leaders, as general people, we're, we've spent most of our career being taught how to communicate. You, right? I mean, you know how to clarify your message, your vision, your values. These are the goals, speak from stage, master PowerPoint, keynote, microphone, your hand gestures, all that kind of stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Since birth, we're kind of taught how to master communication skills. Very few of us, if ever, have had a formal class on how to listen. Speaking is quite selfish. Listening is quite selfless. And it's pretty counterintuitive because we've been so indoctrinated to just constantly be talking and clarifying and clarifying. Rachel knows her values. She knows her mission. She knows her business goals. Half of you know them. And she has to keep talking about them over and over again because everybody's busy. And so she's also enculturated to be speaking and communicating and persuading and influencing. In fact, you're probably in the persuasion and influence mode at home and at work 95% of the time. That seems right. But great leaders are great listeners. Because you cannot show empathy, which is a leadership competency, if you're talking. And here's some great practice tips. The reason we're always talking is because we're usually on our own agenda, on our own timeline. Does that make sense? Your own field of experience. I'm listening to you talk, and I'm thinking, I wish you just would hurry up because um, if I was a girl, I dated him, I know how to solve that, or I had that same business, or you get the, I've already been there in life, if you would just stop talking, I can solve your problem. I'm on my timeline, I'm on my agenda, not yours. You with me? And it's often why we interrupt so, so much. I'll talk about that in a second. So here's what usually happens. I want you to tell me, we're gonna role play, that your dog died. Don't add any more narrative, just tell me your dog died. My dog died. Oh my gosh, was there blood everywhere? Was it hit by a car? Was it horrible? Was it really upsetting? Did you actually hold it in your hands? What happened? <laughs> Say it again. My dog died. Well, thank the Lord, because that underwater dog therapy you and your husband were paying for every month, it was breaking you. It was about time. What a relief. This sounds macabre, but it's not that far-fetched. Say it again. My dog died. Whatever you do, do not take it to that vet down on Central and Fourth because they don't finish the job in the crematorium and they get bones and fur back and all that. I've seen it. It's really a bad thing. <laughs> Say it again. My dog died. I'm sorry. Wasn't on my agenda. I don't know if she's happy or sad. The dog could have had rabies. The dog could have bitten her son. The dog be, could be incontinent and you know, destroying her sheep carpet. You know, I have no idea. All my responses were on my own narrative, were they not? What I think she should do, how I think she should behave. I have no idea. So then, and the problem is as leaders, as people, we've all become really good at asking questions, right? Peel the onion, get to the root cause. And that's great in some meetings, when you're managing a P&L or you've got a deadline, asking great questions can be a really good leadership tool. It also can be a horrifyingly selfish interpersonal tool, because you're usually on your own narrative. In fact, when someone passes away, 
What's the first question most of us ask or want to find out? How did they die? That's exactly right. It doesn't matter. It, it matters to you. It doesn't matter to them unless they tell you. People will tell you what they need you to know. You will ask what you want to know. And I think that is a profound, not just leadership skill, but interpersonal skill. Move off of your own agenda. Move off of your own timeline and be selfish and really get into what the other person is feeling and thinking. I want to do one more. I think one of the reasons why we're so poor listeners is that we interrupt a lot. Who here is an interrupter? Thank you for raising your hands. I usually get like one or two hands out of a thousand people. I'm seriously, you're the worst self-awareness. Nicely done. I'll bet all of you have a propensity to interrupt. Uh, if you're my age, which none of you are, uh, there was a very famous linguistics professor, Deborah Tannen, at Georgetown University. She wrote a bunch of books back in the 70s and 80s. They were massive New York Times hits. She wrote one called, I think, I just, You Just Don't Understand. Yeah. It's a phenomenal book. I ended up book. getting it because you? you said she Did was you? one of your favorites. Yes. Yeah. yeah, this woman is very smart. She's, I think, the world's most foremost linguistics um, expert, Dr. Deborah Tannen, T-A-N-N-E-N. And she, I interviewed her once, and she shared with me the reason most people interrupt is because we all have a subconscious sense for how long we think the other person should be speaking. I think you should be speaking for 48 seconds. You think she should be speaking for 49 seconds. You think she should stop talking because she talks all the time. But in our, I'm kidding. But in our own subconscious, each of us has a sense for how we think the other person should be talking. And subconsciously, when that alarm goes off, we interrupt because we're over it. And we want to solve their problem for them. We want to build, bring our experience to it. And at this conscious level, it's actually quite generous. Because you do want to help them solve their problem. Do you want your husband to solve most of your problems when you're at home complaining? No. No. You want love. You don't want judgment. You want some empathy. You want him to solve it for you. Mm -hmm. You just want to talk about it and probably just love you and listen. Mm -hmm. Everyone is the same. The greatest human need is to be understood. So if you want to stop your subconscious impulsive need to constantly interrupt it comes from a good place here's the tip you ready don't <laughs> and here's how you do it you gently take your upper lip and you close it and touch your lower lip and you count to seven not like but I don't want to see any teeth practice with me And Deborah Tannen says it's within that seven to 10 seconds that the likelihood is the other person will either finally land their point, finish it off, or disclose something especially meaningful or important is like astronomically likely. If you can just resist the urge to interrupt them, they'll tell you what you need to know. I think it's a great tip. Practice it today. Don't, 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 you know, you'll, you know, you'll laugh. At the next meeting, you'll be seeing each other kind of like closing your lips, but you'll, you'll have an immediate exponential impact on your ability to become more empathic. And I'm going to finish this off right now. Uh, while you're closing your lips and you can't talk, <laughs> you can't form a word if, if your lips are closed, you'll be automatically gravitationally pulled back into their point. Your mind won't be wandering on your project or your email or my cufflinks or any of that kind of stuff. You'll be back onto them. It takes some effort, doesn't it? It takes some effort to eliminate all the distractions and kind of get into what they're feeling, what they're saying. 
Because people aren't crazy. People just have mindsets that are deeply enculturated since birth, and your parents, your ministers, your principal, your teacher. And so people believe things for a reason. Like I wrote a whole chapter about that, right? Yeah. That your paradigms shape your belief system more than you can ever imagine. I could riff on that for five minutes. Well, so this one I want to make sure that we get to because this was another one that sort of knocked me sideways, which was the idea of emotional discipline and not getting... You're like, what? No, I don't okay. have any. But <laughs> uh, so, so it's from yeah. uh, the chapter on carry your own yeah, weather, right? which I yeah. would love if yeah. you would speak yeah. to that. Yeah. But what does it mean to be emotionally disciplined? Yes. Because this is one for me personally yeah. that I absolutely have struggled with in the past and will still creep yeah. up for me. I will, something will go wrong, someone will have an, and I will immediately, you might not know it, but inside my head and yeah. my body, I am going to DEFCOM. Yeah. Whatever DEFCOM yeah. is the world's ending, that's the one I'm at. I'm freaking out, I'm having an anxiety attack, and the leader in me would never let you know that, but I am freaking out. I think it's very natural, especially for entrepreneurs mm -hmm. and upstarts and, and leaders of the high growth organizations, because you've got a vision, mm -hmm. and you have to meet payroll, Mm -hmm. And you have a lot of responsibility for people's insurance and 401ks and, and paychecks and client gigs. So you have an enormous amount of pressure on you and as to your partners. Uh, this idea of carry your own weather comes from never giving over your power to somebody else. Sounds very Oprah-ish. But it's by metaphorically carrying your own weather that you don't allow other people's moods, insecurities, incompetencies to impact your own state of mind. You literally metaphorically carry your own weather with you. And you can't do that if you're not emotionally mature. I mean, we've all been there, right? You walk into the office, the boss passes you, slams the door, and you're convinced you're getting fired. It never could have been that he and his teenage boy had a fight this morning, or that he's actually you know, worried about his job, right? It's not as much about you as you think it is, like in life. And we all have these sort of paranoia mindsets where we focus everything in on us. It's actually rarely about you. And stop making it about you. Everyone, including me, should stop making it so much about yourself. People who metaphorically carry their own weather, this isn't something you just do. You mature into this. Here's how I think you do it. Here's how I did it. Here's how I'm doing it. This is a journey, right? <laughs> Dr. Covey taught this idea of having a personal mission statement. This is not new to you, right? Organizations have them, divisions have people. But it never worked well for me. I was single till I was 41. I didn't have kids till I was 43. And I, like, my mission, what's my mission? I have no idea. I don't know. Porsche? <laughs> Go to Rome for the 10th time? I have no idea what my mission is. Honestly, it kind of felt like something that wasn't even in my realm. Who here is single? It's a crate, isn't it? <laughs> It's so quiet. I miss it so much. I had this kick-ass loft in Chicago. You could see where the cleaning lady had vacuumed the, you know, the floor, the, the lines. The My carpet. clothes were all color-coded. I know, probably why I was single. Um, but the, the personal mission thing never resonated with me. And then our other founder once gave a speech about knowing your values. And it sounded kind of cliche, but he, gave, he, he announced his values from stage. I thought, that really resonates with me. I don't think I shared this in the book, but I went out that day and said, you know what, I have no idea what my values are. And if you asked me on Tuesday, they'd be different than Wednesday, because I have a big vocabulary. I would just make stuff up. That sounded smart. I said, what a fraud. I said, I'm going to actually go out and decide what my values are. So I spent a couple of weeks, and I wrote down my values. Phil Pal, P-H-I-L-P-A-L. -L. Purpose, health, integrity, loyalty, 
positivity, abundance, and learning. Phil Pal. And I wrote him down in hierarchical order. That my first value was my purpose. And I was just starting to get engaged and getting ready to get married. And I thought, you know what, probably a bigger purpose than color-coded closet in a Porsche. <laughs> Apparently it's private school, right? That's <laughs> killing me. Um, but I think that's what was so instrumental in me being able to carry my own weather, was to really understand what are my values. My first value was what is my purpose? I think it's parenthood now. I don't love it, but I think it's my responsibility. Yeah. And my key purpose now is, um, is parenting. The second one was health. What I put in my body, what I eat, my exercise, and my cholesterol, my, and all that. The, the, the next was um, integrity and loyalty. I'm way too loyal to people. But I'm willing to get burned on it because loyalty is hugely important to me, both ways. Positivity, abundance, being a generous, abundant versus a scarce person. You get the point, right? So once I had my values, mm -hmm. I could be a little less reactive to other people because my purpose and my value became a little more implicit. I kind of knew who I was. I was confident in my skills. I got options, not arrogant, but I was more confident in what my, what, what my values were. And so you could less hijack my emotional weather because you were being a jerk or you were late or you were insecure or you felt bad about your body image, whatever it was, I made it less about that. And I started to become more empathetic. And I realized she's struggling with something or he. I don't know what it is. I don't claim to understand it, but there's a reason why that person is behaving that way to me. Did I cause that or did they have that when they came to work this morning? You with me? And the more I started to realize what my values were, and I shared them more, the less I was reactionary to people, the more I was less precocious and impulsive. Because up until that time, I was the kind of jerk that used to say, why well, just tell it like it is? Let the chips fall where they land. You met that person? <laughs> horribly selfish. That's a coward. It takes a courageous and considerate person to care about another person. It is, it is amazingly selfish just to let words fly. Because I was a bit of a, gr a grenade thrower. And I would run. And it would, there was carnage over here. And I was known as being very courageous. Scott will say anything. Because I was a coward. By the time it landed, I was over here. Running that way. And I guess became to realize that this idea of sort of just saying what's on my mind and, and kind of uh, pinging around on my emotions was quite immature. And it wasn't at all deliberate. And it felt good in the moment, because it does feel good sometime, see what's on your mind. But who often regrets that an hour, two, three hours, two days later when your boss has to call you in and say, are you kidding me? You said what? Are you, are you kidding me? It never is worth it in the long term. So I think if you want to carry your own weather, don't make it all about you. Understand what your values are. Write them down. Prioritize them. And don't write them for anybody else. Don't write world peace. Don't write um, impeachment. Just write down things. Don't, and don't share them with anybody if you want to, right? A lot of times you write stuff down because you want it to look good to others. I don't care what you think about my values. Yeah. I don't care if you hate them. Yeah. I don't care. Yeah. My values are my values and your values are you. don't compromise your values for anybody. Yeah. Do you? No. Sometimes at Walmart where the kids are there and they like, want a toy, right? You're like, I'm not buying a toy, and you do. Um, but that's the key, I think, to carrying your emotional weather, is don't giving power over to anybody else. It doesn't mean you don't apologize. It doesn't mean you don't sometimes apologize for things you don't feel like you should. Because, can I go to that? Of course. The only apology is the excuse-free apology. 
What we usually do is say, Rachel, I'm sorry if you were offended in the meeting last week. I mean, it was so busy and Jim just talks nonstop and he drives me crazy and accounting. That's not an apology. That's me just like protecting myself from any responsibility. Notice I said, Rachel, I'm sorry if you were offended. What I should say is, Rachel, I am sorry that I offended you last week. What I said was wrong and inexcusable. I apologize. I'm going to try to never do that again. Would you please forgive me? That takes courage. It takes kind of manning up or womaning up. It takes some self-confidence. Don't attach any disclaimers to your apologies. And sometimes you have to apologize because it's the right thing to do. Even when you're like, it's all her, that guy's insane. No, sometimes you just, you know what? I, I'm really sorry about what happened in last week's meeting. I feel bad that it's kind of made it awkward with us. And I take full responsibility for what I did. I apologize. Would you please forgive me? Most people will forgive you on the spot and a watershed will rush over them, if not right then, later on with shame on the fact that they had some culpability also. Not always, but most times. Man. I've hijacked your interview, I'm sorry. No, no, you absolutely haven't. Is our time up? No, but it's time oh. for Q&A or we won't oh, get okay, to great. it. Whenever we're going through something hard, it always affects us in more than one way. In the season that I've been in in my life, going through a difficult time has affected my sleep. I feel like I'm getting insomnia again that I haven't had in several years. And being able to talk that through with my therapist and kind of unpack why that anxiety is showing up at night or why my thoughts are racing or why I can't seem to shut my head off has been super helpful for me. And if you have considered seeing a therapist or talking to a counselor, it has never been easier to meet with someone virtually. If you are not familiar with BetterHelp, then I want to make sure that you hear about it from me. BetterHelp has counselors who specialize in everything you can imagine. Depression, stress, anxiety, anger, family conflicts, self-esteem. Anything that you share is confidential and the service is convenient and affordable. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. I want you to start living a happier life today. And as a listener of my podcast, you get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash rise. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp.com slash rise. Uh, we'd love to hear from you guys what uh, questions you have. So when you're talking about trust, when you've identified a breach of trust, I think you called it a deficit, yeah. with another person, Yes. what is your recommendation for the first step you take to rebuild that? Yeah, yeah so uh, you have this office here. Mm -hmm. Is there an office across the street? Across the I street saw people and walking in next, next door. door. That's right. Mm -hmm. That's right. So every culture is different. Every emotional bank account is different. You've heard of this term? Like your physical bank account, each of you has an emotional bank account with everybody else. And you make deposits and you make withdrawals. And you don't make deposits so that you can make withdrawals, right? You just, you, you naturally have a, a different level of emotional trust 
in your bank account with each person in this, in this complex. And you ought to think about it. So depending upon where your level of emotional bank account might be overdrawn, might be so abundant that you couldn't do anything to offend Rachel because implicitly she knows your intent, she knows your character, she knows your reputation, so she may forgive a lot of things from you. Depending upon where that balance is, you might have different courses of action. If it's low, you might send the person an email, which I'm not a big fan of that. I put nothing in email because I'm an officer in a company. I don't write anything down. <laughs> not because I'm shady, it's just I don't want it subpoenaed. So I don't, I don't all my texts have been subpoenaed many times and yeah. welcome to public companies, yeah. right? But I don't put anything in email other than you're awesome. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I might put it was the what was the the prayer what was it the divinely this meaning yes, 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 yeah, yeah right yeah. I might put that anyway so you might send them an email depending on where the trust is to say hey I've noticed that things have been awkward between us and I wonder if we might meet across the street for coffee in the next couple of days might be appropriate right or if it, if the culture is such a walk over I think the first is to take the first step get somebody in a comfortable position not probably in a glass conference room. Maybe it's we walk down, I guess it's a residential, maybe you take a walk, whatever it is, right? But you wanna make sure that you're both in a environment where you feel equal and non-threatening and declare your intent. But I think that's so important. Can I, can I riff on that? Yes, I actually love I think this. Uh, declaring your intent is fundamental to avoiding and mitigating content. A dear friend of mine, Blay Lee, once said, this is one of the most profound things I've ever heard in my life, nearly all, if not all conflict comes from mismatched or unfulfilled expectations. Nearly all, if not all conflict in life comes from mismatched or unfulfilled expectations. Think about it. Person who watches your car, your boyfriend, your mother-in-law, your boss, and you name it, right? With a little bit of extra courage up front to declare your intent, goes so far because absent facts People make stuff up. People will ascribe intentions to your motive, whether you want them to or not. And every one of you has a hidden agenda. And you're fooling yourself if you don't. Some are kind of hidden one inch below the surface, some are hidden 10 inches, some are buried three feet deep. Everybody here, including Rachel, has hidden agendas. Depending upon how willing and how courageous you are and how maybe articulate you are at declaring them is how quick they can come to the surface. I love this phrase. Declare your intent. Say, my intent in this conversation is to make it right between the two of us because I don't know about you, but I don't like this conflict. And we both know that our key job here is to deliver on this company's purpose. And the conflict between us is, is, stall is slowing that down. Mm -hmm. So my intent is to understand what happened from your perspective. What do you feel I'm responsible for? But declare your intent up front. My intent is to understand what do you think happened and to better, that's it. Use those words, my intent is. Rachel, my intent today is not to slow your project down. I need to have four or five questions answered. And once I have those answered, I'm gonna make your project like on rocket boosters. Mm -hmm. Declare your intent. Now, if someone says, you know what, I haven't felt like that's your intent, be mature enough to say, thanks for sharing that. Maybe it wasn't, but it is now. So good. Next question. Thank you. Is that helpful? Yes. Hi. Hi. What is your name? My name is Sarah. Sarah, I'm Scott. This is actually my second week. Woohoo! <laughs> Welcome, Sarah. Um, I wanted to go back to something that really resonated with me at, um, at the beginning of your discussion, and it was how can leaders encourage great high-performing individual contributors 
yeah. to go to the next level without going into management. Yeah, well, congrats on a great culture where a second week employee feels the, um, the, job, the atmosphere to be able to speak up, right? I don't know that I would have in all my previous companies. I, I think fundamentally, I love this idea that it was Patty, Patty McCord, who's the former chief talent officer at Netflix, Netflix taught yeah. me this. You met her? No, I no, just she's loved a force. her book. Yeah, she's a force to reckon yeah. with. Yeah, I interviewed her on my podcast. It's worth, it's worth watching. Yeah. Um, not every organization can build an enterprise that's big enough to accommodate everybody's career plans, right? Rachel doesn't have 800 employees yet. But, so it's tough sometimes depending on the size of the organization. Sometimes the right thing to do is to move on and move out. That's okay. Because can I tell you, send-offs are more about those who stay than those who leave. How you treat those who leave is more about those who stay. So to, I take this in a different direction, I'm gonna come back to your question. When someone comes to Rachel and says, Rachel, I've accepted a job over at Ralph Lauren. Mm -hmm. I'm moving to Manhattan. Rachel has a couple options. A lot of leaders shame them and take their pass away and say, I'm very, very excited for you. Um, uh, today is your last day. That's like 90% of corporate America. And in some cases that's right, right? For security reasons or password control. In some cases that is right. In the vast majority of cases, what should happen is, oh, I'm so sad for me, but I'm so excited for you. I'm so excited that you're able, you get the point, right? Meanwhile, she's probably thinking appropriately, oh, that's where you were last Thursday. That's where you were two Fridays ago when you missed the meeting, we're out interviewing. But you know what, we're all human. Mm -hmm. And Rachel wants what's best for you. And if being here isn't best for you, then it's not best for her. But it's very important that Rachel says, I wish you a ton of success. And in three years, I hope you bring all that new knowledge back to this organization. And in the meantime, refer in all of your high competence, high trust friends. We'd love to have them here. And when everybody hears that, they know that this is a safe place to work. It's a safe culture. And Rachel would rather have us in, but she's okay if where we need to be is out. Mm. So to your point, I don't think anybody should be shamed into doing anything that they don't want to do. Now, there are certain criteria. To work at the Hollis Company, you have to have certain values and behaviors and objectives and outcomes and contribute and all of that. And to work here, you have to rise to that standard or you can't work here. But I think it's important to ask people, what's in your mind? What do you want? What's going on in your life? How can I help you? You know, one of these uh, challenges are, the, are these one-on-one -on -one meetings. Mm -hmm. Can I talk about it for a second? Of course. You know, one of the challenges is, uh, is this idea of leaders need to have one-on-one -on -one meetings. I'm gonna get emotional for a moment here. Uh, this is not another staff meeting. It's not another accountability meeting. It's a meeting where leaders sit down with their team member and they listen. It's a half hour meeting. It's their meeting, not your meeting. They create the agenda, not you. They do 80% of the talking, you do 20% because you're listening. And it's a chance for you to understand what's going on with the other person. Do they wanna be in leadership? Do they want to be in the job that they're in? I think the younger generation sometimes tries to harvest too soon. So I think for those of you who are younger than me, my best career advice to you is when you want to harvest, like you're a farmer, don't plant. Plant some more, fertilize, weed, water. When you want to come to Rachel for a promotion, go back and harvest, or don't go harvest. Plant, plant, plant. I think the younger generation who is smarter than we are and is just as hardworking, they try to harvest a little too soon. I may have dated myself on that. Um, these one-on-one -on -one meetings are a chance for the leader to really listen to what their person has facing them. 
Because you may assume the person wants to be in leadership and they don't want to be. I've had a great example of one of my team members who's our head writer. I was kind of grooming her to take my role as the EVP of thought leadership. I'm in the firm for the coming years, but my brand is growing and I'm writing more books. The publisher has a whole mess of success series. My next book is Marketing Mess to Brand Success. The third one is Job Mess to Career Success, Parenting Mess, there's a whole mess of success series coming out. And I'm kind of grooming her to take my job. And about halfway into my very persuasive conversation, because I can be very persuasive, she says to me, I don't want your job. I don't want to live in Salt Lake. I don't want to be an officer. I don't want to lead people. I don't want to run a PL. I just want to write. And I had spent so much time building this great. And my problem is, I'm so persuasive, I probably could have won. And she would have found herself having moved out to Salt Lake, taking over my job, managing a team of 15 people, and then quitting nine months later, because I lured her into that. So be very careful what your motives are. But these one-on-one -on -one meetings are all about you understanding what's going on with your person. Because there's another adage that is bunk in the industry. Leaders don't create engagement. I cannot make you more engaged. What I can do is create the culture and the conditions for you to choose your own level of engagement, high or low. And during these one-on-one -on -one meetings is a chance for you to create a culture where the other person chooses a high level of engagement and you understand what's going on in their life. Let me ask you a question. I don't want you to answer it until you are 100% sure you know what the answer is. Why is the person at the cubicle five slots over eating popcorn for lunch on Thursday? Why is the person five spots over eating popcorn for lunch on Thursday? Do not answer it until you have the right answer. Because payday is Friday. Damn it, you're like the second person ever who got that. Everybody says because they love popcorn. <laughs> or it's popcorn Thursday. No. You just, your stature just like shot through the roof with me. Because payday's on Friday. And it's put their last $3 in their gas tank to get to work this morning. And that they know that their direct deposit comes in at 12.01 a.m. Either mom or dad is head down to the grocery store to buy Cheerios, milk, and lunch meat, and they're going to the ATM to get the 20 bucks because the lunch fee for school is overdue. That's how 90% of this country is living. And that should sit really heavy on you. And then I say to people, if this is a surprise to you, shame on you. Because you are disconnected from the lives that people are leading. Everyone's got a teenage kid who's vaping. <laughs> Everyone's got an in-law or a parent moving into dementia. Yeah. Everybody's got a bill they can't pay. Everybody's got a phone call coming in because your car payment's late and you had to walk outside to take it. Mm -hmm. Or fill in the blank. And as a leader, I'm not saying it's your job to pay their lunch, pay their bills, but it's your job to understand what's going on in their life because everyone's got baggage going on, everyone's got a mess. And as a leader, the more you can empathize and appreciate it, the more you understand why were they late to work. Why are they not collaborating? Doesn't mean you make excuses for it, right? Because your mom has dementia doesn't mean you get a right to work here. You get to work somewhere, but you don't get to work here. You have to live up to the standard. We'll work with you, but, the more, but you get the point, right? Is a leader's job is to listen and be empathetic, understand what's going on in their world, including what are their career goals. 
there's something I just want to hit on this before we go to the next question is we're talking a lot about leadership, but I do think that every single person here can have that leadership quality of caring about the other people around you. What does that look like when you're not? Because I don't want it to be like, oh, you only care about these things if you're in management. I think it's called being a human. I think it's a, I think it, I think vulnerability is not just a leadership competency. I think it's a human competency. I think for so long, all of us, me included, right? We have our exterior lives and our brands and the cars we drive and our image and our paychecks and we build these um, profiles of ourselves. You know, I was preparing for an interview with Viola Davis, the actress, mm -hmm. and I read a passage that Viola Davis wrote about in Brene Brown's book, how she was raised in abject poverty and she would come home and not know if the water was gonna be on, or the power was gonna be on, and she would smell like urine and go to school, and she, she turned her life just amazing around. And when she went to Hollywood, she had um, someone tell her, by the way, you have to have thick skin to survive in Hollywood. And when I read it, I thought, oh my gosh, it's so validating. Catholic guy from Utah, or from Orlando, moving to Provo, gotta have thick skin. And I felt so validated, and I read the next paragraph, and she said, the problem with thick skin is nothing gets in, but nothing gets out and instead have translucent, transparent skin. I think this, this idea you bring up about having empathy for others is a human skill. Is we all have been deeply enculturated in life to believe things that your parents taught you. My parents taught me that Catholic priests, doctors, and police officers always tell the truth and are always right. It's insane. <laughs> I mean, but I was, I was raised to believe that. In a middle-class family in the 70s in Florida, of course police officers didn't plant evidence. Of course Catholic priests always had good intentions. Can you imagine if I had to put those three things to the test? <laughs> no. Can you imagine if I was ever called into the sacristy with a Catholic priest and believed fundamentally that everything they did was right and true? My life could have been destroyed. Mm -hmm. I, I, I'm a lifelong Catholic in good standing. By raising my boys, that faith has been very good to me. It has not to everyone. Every one of you have deeply enculturated mindsets, beliefs, paradigms, kind of the lens through which you see the world, how you see other religions, races, other competencies, how you see leadership, how you see the internet, how you see India, how you see Trump. You have deeply enculturated belief systems that are rarely accurate, and they're never complete, and they're never whole about another person. Be a little more forgiving, a little more understanding, People believe things for reasons. Not because they're always true, it's because they've spent 30 years being told this is where a woman's role in, or who should be in finance, or how do you become a CFO, right? Yeah, absolutely. Challenge your own beliefs, but other people as well. People are doing things for a reason. And they may not always know why themselves. Be more generous. Next question. Doesn't mean, doesn't mean you lower your standard. Right? I have a high standard. I fired a lot of people. <laughs> I fired more than anybody here are fired. But hopefully in a gracious and a humane way to say, you got to work somewhere. You can't work here anymore. How do I help you? It's not working out. And it's torture for you and it's torture for us. Please. Remember your first name? Brad. Brad. Hi. With communication being such an important piece of a healthy culture, um, you talk a lot about feedback and typical conversation that yeah. comes from management. Yeah. Yeah. How do you foster the sort of communication that goes the feedback loop? Yeah. Like, how do you create with the people on your team yeah. the culture to say that it's okay to have difficult conversations yeah. well with people about it? Yeah, this is an hour, so I'll cut it to two minutes. Um, I think that I think a leader is a leader has two main jobs. 
to attract and retain quality talent. And in fact, I'm 51. I've been a formal leader of people for over 20 years. And it wasn't, Rachel, until I was 50 years old that I realized that my leadership strategy was to always hire smart people, but not smarter than me. Oof. And I learned this in the last year. Because I was too insecure as a leader to hire anybody who I thought was smarter than me. I hired smart people, but not people that I sm thought were smarter than me. And as a result, I misserved the organization, our investors, our shareholders, our clients, our employees, grossly for 20 years. I was too insecure as a leader. Because I wanted to save the day. I thought my job was to be the smartest person in the room, the most creative, the most well-read, the most well-spoken. You get the point. That wasn't my job. My job was not to be the genius in the room. My job was to be the genius maker of others in the room. That comes from Liz Wiseman, who wrote a book called Multipliers. Best leadership book I've ever read. So first, your job is to attract and retain talent. Your job is to hire people who are palpably smarter than you and let them thrive. Build the culture. That's your number one job. Hire people who are obviously smarter than you. Second, then, is to provide feedback on their blind spots. Because even those who are smarter than you have blind spots around their interpersonal skills, their time management, their productivity, their whatever it is, right? And to do that in a safe place. But in order for you to provide good feedback, you have to move outside your comfort zone. You have to be able to discuss the undiscussables. And you probably should role play it with another senior person in the organization. Or better yet, because you're so small, perhaps some other organization. Or go to Rachel's house, whatever the rapport is, and say, hey, I've got an issue with Tina. Can I role play this with you? Right? Because then Rachel can comment on your body language. Gosh, that seemed really harsh. Or you said in four minutes, I'm not quite sure what you said in four minutes because you didn't get to the point, right? But practice it three or four times because you'll get better at it. People say to me, well, Scott, but you're so courageous. Yeah, I came out of the womb being courageous. No, I, I screwed up the first 70 of them. But with some practice, you'll get better at them. And then I think most importantly, you have to model it. You have to actually show people that you also are open to feedback. So make feedback your brand. Solicit it. On what is it, ask someone, what's it like to work with me on a project? What's it like to be in a professional relationship with me? Ask your wife or your husband, what's it like to be married to me? You'll learn a lot of insight. And the more self-aware you are in your own blind spots, the more you'll be willing to accept feedback. And when your team knows that you're willing to accept it and not refute it or dispel it or talk yourself out of it, if you choose to implement it, it's your own choice. But you have to set the conditions where it's safe for others to tell you the truth about you. Because if you don't make it safe, nobody will be lured back into that pond twice. So when you do ask for feedback, write it down, close your lips. You can ask for clarifying questions, right? So when I do that, what's usually happening? Is it in a finance meeting? Is Rachel in the room? Is it on a Saturday? Just ask for some feedback. Say, thank you for sharing that with me. You have to make it safe for others to tell you the truth. Otherwise, they'll lie to you. Because most people are cowards. And that isn't a character flaw. That's a personality trait. The more safe it is you make it for them to tell you things, the more they will realize they have to do the same. As a leader, you have to be willing to be the model. That's awesome. Do you have a question, Chelsea? What is your name? Chelsea. Chelsea, hi. Yeah, hi. Thank you for being here. My honor. Um, so one thing that really resonated with me with what we've been talking about is talking about um, 
kind of intentionality and the courage around building this kind of culture. And that's a lot of what I think about working here. Like I feel like it's it's part of the work every day is protecting and maintaining yeah. this level of culture. Yeah. So right now, um, I'm in the process of trying to hire a new team member. And I've been thinking a lot about how to approach that empathetically. And I'm wondering if you have any advice or strategies for during the hiring process, yeah. identifying someone, yeah. making sure that they're you know, set up for success in this kind of culture. Good question. Wow, great. I'm with Rachel Hollis today. How cool is that? <laughs> I, like, I had to like check back in. I'm sitting by Rachel Hollis. This is awesome. Your culture is going to change. And it's going to be her biggest nightmare. Remember your husband's name? Dave. Is Dave still here? Somewhere. Dave. There he is. Dave and you are going to go back home one night and you're going to say, we're losing it. Mm. We, we're outgrowing our culture. It's, it, and so your biggest nightmare organizationally is going to be the day you and Dave go home and say, the culture is slipping through our fingers. Because you're not hiring every leader. You're not here every day. And every one of you is going to become the culture carriers. So one of your biggest turning, you'll email me someday when it happens. Maybe it's already happened. <laughs> But it happens to every entrepreneur, right? As it gets bigger than them and they can't keep the cultures, they have to come back in or whatever it is. But with some deliberate, proactive behaviors, you can forestall that event. During the interview process, everybody is faking it. <laughs> everybody is behaving as best as they can. Are they not? Yeah. On both sides. Yeah. So call it out. I always do this. One question I ask is, is and, and if this stumps them, they're out. Um, I'd like you to think of someone who doesn't like you. When you've got that person in mind, tell me. I have had so many people say, yeah, I just I can't think of anybody. And I write, I'm like, okay, this is done. How fast can I end this and not get sued? <laughs> you would be surprised. And then people struggle and I'll say, that's interesting. I can think of like 50 people who don't like me. I can name them off right now. I can name you like in order. 50 people who do not like me. And they're still stumped and they don't get it. The first, so what I'm getting at is self-awareness. What I want to get is, tell me someone who doesn't like you and what is it they don't like about you? And, I, and I'll say, no wrong answer. Because I want to hear what it is. Are they aware of what their interpersonal conflicts are? Because I have, I have terminated dozens of people in my career. I have never once fired someone for lack of ability to do the job. I've never fired someone because they weren't really a CPA or they didn't have user interface. It's always because of their inability to get along with other people or to manage themselves. Every termination was because of lack of self-awareness, low self-acknowledgement, um, blind spots, and then their inability to correct it. And like the most brutal, high courage conversation, they could not walk out and change it. So I'm looking for self-awareness. I'm looking for, I want you to admit that you hog all the credit, that you're really struggling with, you know, how to work people whose personalities are different than you. I want you to tell me what kind of people bug you. I ask that question. Tell me the types of personalities that really get on your nerves. When you found yourself at conflict with someone else, what's that like? And their ability to talk about it says so much about them. Now, most people are manipulating you. Because they realize they got to share a story and they got to save it by saying, but I learned so much from it and I'm on a growth trajectory, right? But I think really do less talking. Don't sell your company to them. Just, are they taking, are they taking um, writing stuff down? 
My favorite question is, so what questions do you have? Oh my gosh, how many six-figure people say nope? That about sums it up. And I'm like, are you serious? Yeah. You don't have questions about the merger or the acquisition or the fact that our stock dropped 40% or our inventory or that our Italian office is being sued? I mean, really? Yeah. You have no questions, right? <laughs> so I, I, I try to talk a lot less because people will incriminate themselves. Mm -hmm. And the more they say, and I love to have team interviews, not 10 on one, but like four on one. And I make it as casual as possible. My, most of my team members used to think I was a horrible interviewer because I was so casual. Like, I'm your friend, everything is great. No, 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 I'm lowering the barrier to entry. Let's have a beer, right? I lower it because I want to see the real you yeah. come out of the facade because everybody is faking it. And anybody can fake it for 90 minutes. Here's the next question I ask. In three weeks, what is it you're going to do that really pisses someone off here? Ooh, that's a good because question. Because you're going to, and it's okay, I just want to know what is it going to be. So I can help you get ahead of the, ahead of, ahead of the curve. What's it going to be? You're going to get into some interpersonal conflict. What's it going to be over? So good. And if someone can answer, like, ask me that question. Uh, in three weeks, what are you going to do that's going to piss somebody off here? What am I not going to do? Um, <laughs> but you know, I'm really aware of it. I tend to like to talk a lot, and I sometimes think that my, think my ideas are always the best, and I've really grown around this by being very deliberate around talking less, and oftentimes waiting to be called on or being the last person to speak in the room, because a lot of other people's ideas can be just as great as mine and get results in a different way, and my job as a leader is not to turn them into my clones, but to get, you get the point, right? Yeah. 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 Can I ask if someone, uh, if you have someone on your team or if you are feeling like you personally struggle with a lack of self-awareness, is that something that you think can be learned or taught? Yeah, as a leader you mean? Well, for anyone, yeah. let's say, you know, you're, yes. you asking these questions is so yeah. wise and I've never thought about doing that in an interview before yeah. because it is so essential. Yeah. But there are, we all have different levels of self-awareness and so if you as a leader recognize someone on your team, you're like, how do you not yeah. see, like, how yeah. do you teach that yeah. other I, than I, continuing to tell them, look, this is, this is, what, this is what it is. Well, what I don't know, you have to continue doing it. Mm. Because if you continue doing it and it's not working, you're now losing the respect of the other people around you mm, by not good. being able to call it out and, and, then, and then cut it off. Mm -hmm. I have a gentleman who works for me who is, I would put up against any of your designers in terms of his digital capability. And interpersonally, he's a toxic cancer. Mm. He has everything on his hard drive and will not put it on the system. He has to create everything himself. He's super scarce minded. He is incapable of ever letting somebody else shine and he can never say, that's my fault. He's, he's chemically incapable, but he's so talented that he has me by the you know what. Yeah. The problem is, by the throat. <laughs> the problem is, I'm losing the respect of all of his peers because they realize that I'm not exercising the courage to excise him from the company because he is making their life hell. Yeah. And so my own credibility is suffering by just constantly accommodating him. And they're tired of me, and by the way, I'm the boss. Yeah. And these are six-figure directors. Yeah. They're tired of me saying, well, I've talked to him about it. Mm. Now they, they don't want him fired, they want me to solve it. Mm. Which means he has to leave. Yeah. So I, I think you have to have a high courage conversation to say, Jim, we have talked about this issue several times now, and I don't know why, perhaps you just disagree, and maybe I'm wrong, but the fact of the matter is, I'm responsible for this culture, 
and it hasn't changed and it can't continue anymore. So this conversation now is about getting you situated as best as possible outside of the Hollis company mm -hmm. because Friday is going to be your last day. So now all of our conversations from this moment forward are going to be about how to get you safely situated outside the firm. Because mm. your employment here is over. It's not discussable anymore. I don't want you to think that I don't care about you because I do, that I care about you so much that I want you to succeed outside the firm, but it's not working here anymore. That's good. All right, one more. We have time for one more. Yes. Nicole. Hi, Nicole. So um, like leaning into this conversation, I'm loving this so much because I'm young in my career, I'm really excited about where I'm going, but I have found that when I find myself in management positions, I have a lot of trouble with empathy because I, I give so much and I receive so much and it's hard for me to really draw the line between where the boundaries are for being a professional manager yeah, versus yeah. being a friend yeah. and how you kind of can be both but still have to yeah. expect that at the end of the day your word is your word and it has to be done. Yeah. It's a slippery slope. Yeah especially when you are promoted over your team. Because last week they were your friends and your colleagues and you all were complaining about the boss. And now you are the boss. And you look like a fool, right? So I do think that's important to have, not to divide your life between personal and professional, but I think it's important to just maintain your reputation high throughout so that when you are promoted that it doesn't feel awkward. I think that you have to be careful about all your conversations. Your reputation is merely a collection of all of your decisions in life. So you can't all of a sudden act like the boss one day when you were like the colleague the next, right? Um, I think it is a slippery slope on having friendships in the workplace because it makes a great culture. At the end of the day though, you can have friendships and it still be very clear, this is my professional responsibility. And I have to have this conversation with you or this has to be done. There's no latitude or allowance. I think it should be a healthy culture. I think there, there, there's, a, there's a hierarchy here, is there not? Absolutely. Yep. And at the end of the day, the hierarchy is important because we are responsible to each other and to each other. And I'm just fine with that. So I think it's important. It doesn't mean you can't go to lunch with your team and joke and talk about, you know, your marital problems or whatever it is. Maybe not. You get the point, right? Or, you know, where Thanksgiving is. But I think you have to be careful about drawing the line too, because in the day you may have to have a high courage conversation that may more difficult be made by the relationship yeah. as well. So I think it takes sometimes holding back, not in an artificial way. You, just, you, you kind of learn that, right? You, it, it's not something you're, you seem to be young to me, at least younger than me. <laughs> it will become more natural. It is a struggle, it's not yeah. easy. I can't say here's what you do, right? It's just. Um, I do think it's important to recognize you're responsible to each other both um, sideways and hierarchically. And as, and as important as it is for you to be the leader, for those who are reporting to you, don't take advantage of that. Don't place your leader in an uncomfortable position. Don't manipulate them. Don't make them have to choose their level of interpersonal trust, right? Take responsibility for your actions as well. I think one of, the, one of my best experiences as a leader is when someone comes to me and confesses their own issue. Because as the leader, the longer you hide your issues, the less you give me the latitude to help you solve them. Yeah. If something is late, or a client's not paying, or, you, or, or a, well, I don't know what your business model, I know some of it, but the more you hoard information, or hoard your own insecurities, the more you disempower me to help you. The sooner you own up to it, and confess it, and tell me, the more options I have. But the longer you wait, 
the more you back me into a corner. Yeah. So everybody become more and more self-aware. You know what you should do? Sit down with your boss and say, that guy who talked really fast up there, I'm going to ask the questions he said. What's it like to work with me? Yeah. What's it like to work on a project with me? What are some areas that I could improve on? She'll tell you. So good. I think um, what I would think of for this question, too, is this is something that took me a long time to learn. And when I think of myself earlier in my career as a leader, I absolutely tried to befriend Everyone, I was like Amy Poehler and Mean Girls. Like, I'm the cool mom because I wanted you to like me, which was lack of courage, sure. 100%. Yeah, and I yeah. thought if we could be friends, then you, then maybe it would be easier for me to give you hard information. When the reality is that actually made it harder. I was less truthful with people when I when I wanted them to be my friend. And so what I have had to establish as a leader is. I, I love you. I deeply care about everybody here and want them to be successful, but we are not friends. I'm not friends with anybody here except for Dave, um, and that's required by law. Uh, and it's not a lack of love, and I am freaking rooting for you, but I found as a leader that if I was trying to be your friend, then I couldn't be candid with you and give you the yeah. feedback that I need. So. Um, be graceful with yourself because it still is early on and I do think that's something that you sort of learn as you grow. Um, but that is a, a really interesting distinction and every leader has different styles. But for me, I think yeah. like you can't effectively, in the same way, like I'm not gonna be friends with my kids um, because my job is to help them get better. Awesome. And I think as a leader, your job is to help your team. You can be better. friendly. And Super be friends, friendly. right? Yeah, yeah. Um, we can do shots later, but um, <laughs> but after that, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, hey guys, give it up for Scott. No, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. So this week, I announced my next book. It's called "Didn't See That Coming." It's all about how you put your life back together after your world falls apart. I actually wrote this inside of quarantine because I wanted something that y'all could read as you transition out of the crisis of a pandemic. And then inside of writing it, my world fell apart. And this is a story of how you keep on going. This is a story of the tactics and the tools that I have used time and time again when I have gone through grief or loss or trauma. The book comes out on September 29th and you can find it today. You can pre-order wherever books are sold. And yes, I'm narrating the audio as always. But if you pre-order, meaning if you buy it any time before September 29th. If you go to didn't see that coming newbook.com, you can get my one hour course on how to rebuild. How do you rebuild your life? Free one hour course plus a workbook that you can print out and utilize to start the process. It's something that I thought I could give you to be helpful as you transition to whatever comes next. Didn't See That Coming is my new book, and I hope that you will check it out.